jacket felt too formal for bass playing and no jacket felt too casual for preaching. So uh, uh, as, as we've said before, Pastor Tim is uh, mentally prepping to go on vacation. So, uh, oh, and the kids can go back to their class. I knew I was going to forget that. Thanks, Sharon. Um, so uh, so he's mentally preparing to go on vacation, uh, which I'm, I'm glad that our church is able to actually give him two Sundays off because really one Sunday uh, is not really much of a vacation for a pastor because of all the prep work that goes into that. So uh, I'll be filling in for him this week. And then uh, I think Pastor Steve Del Duco uh, is coming down next Sunday uh, to preach. Uh, so when he asked me, uh, the, the tough thing about doing a, a sermon, just kind of a standalone sermon, is there's a lot of uh, text to pick from. Uh, so I had asked him if he had any plans on preaching through First Peter uh, anytime soon, uh, because that was a passage that God had laid on my heart. Uh, so he said that he didn't. So I'm going to be preaching through First Peter. Uh, it's only five chapters, so I'm just kidding. Uh, what, what we're going to what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to break this up into nine uh, parts. Uh, so in August, I'm going to be filling in again for Pastor Tim when he's uh, defending his dissertation. So we'll do part two uh, in August and then we'll get to the next parts maybe next year when he's on vacation. So this is probably going to be about a four year uh, sermon series. Uh, so we'll try and uh, we're going to we're going to kind of stay a little bit above the clouds and kind of do a, a, a brief or a quick overview of the whole book because we won't be able to, to dig really deep into it. Or that would take us nine years, and we would have forgotten uh, what the first sermon was by that point. Uh, so all that to say, we'll be in First Peter this morning. Uh, so if you can turn uh, in your in your uh, in your Bibles to First Peter, we'll be covering the first twelve verses. Uh, so I'll go ahead and read those. We'll open in prayer, and then we'll uh, get into God's word this morning. First Peter one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire." may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things 
into which angels long to look. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to to study your word and that you've given it to us. Uh, We can uh, rest assured that these are authoritative words from you. Father, as we study your word this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, that you would convict us of sin, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us and strengthen us through this text this morning. Father, we thank you uh, most importantly for saving us through Jesus' blood. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, so in your, uh, if, if you have a bulletin there, you'll see the main point and then the three questions that we're going to talk about uh, in this sermon. So we, what, we, what we have been given is a living hope. So we see in this passage that we have been given a living hope. So what is the cause and effect of that living hope? Or maybe better stated, I changed my mind after the bulletin was printed, and I like this question better. How did we get it and what is it? So how did we get it and what is it? What is it for and how great is it? Again, all of these questions addressed and concerning the words living hope. So just as a brief introduction, because uh, we are going to be studying First Peter over the course of nine, uh, four years, sorry, nine sermons, four years. Um, I always want us to remember that when we come to God's word, that this was a letter that Peter had written to a specific audience. So this is this is a real letter written to real people in real time. It's very easy for us, you know, 2000 years later to come to God's word uh, and study it as an academic textbook. Uh, certainly there are uh, there. It is it is important that we dig into God's word. But we also need to understand that there was an original audience that Peter was writing to. And what was the situation that that original audience was going through and how similar is that to our situation 2000 years ago or 2000 years later? So a letter, this letter is written in the typical Greek style. There's an introduction, there's a body and there's a conclusion. And in the introduction, they always say who's writing it and who they're writing it to. So those are key parts of a letter. Who's writing the letter? Who are they writing it to? And what does the letter contain? So it's very easy. Peter tells us right in the first verse, the author is Peter. Uh, this is Peter the Epistle, one of the, uh, dis- one of the 12 disciples of Christ, uh, who is referenced throughout the Gospels and who's referenced in Acts. It's the very same Peter. So Peter is writing this letter to the audience that he describes as elect exiles of the dispersion. He's using these words very specifically because, as we'll see later, uh, we'll see later in this sermon, but then we'll see in chapter 3 when we get to it, that Peter is writing this letter to a group of people who are either in the midst of trials or on the brink of trials. So he is addressing this letter very specifically at the very beginning to comfort them. He's reminding them that they are elect exiles of the dispersion. And exiles doesn't sound like comfort. Uh, Dispersion doesn't sound like comfort. But we'll start with that first word, elect. That these, he's writing this letter to Christians who have been chosen by God as his elect children. And I know for some reason in America we always stumble over that word elect. And I don't know why because our political system is kind of built upon elections. That we have the opportunity to elect who we want to be president, who we want to be senators, who we want to be congressmen. 
And we see the same thing. The word means the same thing, that God is doing the same thing when he is drawing people unto himself to be his children. He is electing those who will be his children. So Peter is using that for this original audience and for us today, that he is using that word as comfort, that for those that believe in Christ and have been saved uh, by salvation through Christ's blood, have been chosen by God, and we'll, continue, and we'll study a little bit more this morning about what that means and why that gives us comfort, not only now, but for the future. But for now, we'll just talk about that they are elect exiles. This election goes all the way back to the beginning. Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, God talks about why he chose Israel, that he chose Israel, the Jewish nation, not because they were the greatest, not because they were the best, but because they were the least. God set his love and his affection on the nation of Israel because he chose to do that, because he wanted to do that. He could have picked the Egyptians. He could have picked the Babylonians. He could have picked any number of people groups, but he chose Israel to be his elect. And he gave them a mission that they were supposed to be God's representative on earth. And they failed. And we see that over and over again in the Old Testament. So God, in his sovereign plan, which was established before the foundation of the world, sends Jesus as the true representative of Israel. And Jesus obeys the law perfectly all the way to the cross, to the point of death. And we see that he is the representation of true Israel. That is the connection uh, for the exiles. So there were, they were exiles in the Old Testament. I mean, that's basically Israel's story, is constant exile. Egypt, they were in exile. And then when the nation is split, and they're, they're in exile in Babylon, and they're uh, in exile with the Medes and the Persians. And even now, Paul, Peter's writing this letter to a group of Christians who are, who are Jewish and Gentile people. They're living in their, in their homeland of Israel And yet they're occupied by the Roman authorities. So in a sense, they're exiles in their own land. This has been the story of Israel over and over again. And Peter is connecting the elect people that he's writing to, the Christians that he's writing to of the dispersion. He's connecting them with the story of Israel that has been going on since God had chosen them back in the beginning of the Old Testament. So he is connecting them to Israel through Christ. And it also says uh, in the next verse down that they are foreknown by God. Again, he's using these words specifically to give comfort. Foreknowledge is not just knowledge. It's not that God looked down the corridor of time and, and saw who were going to pick him and he picked them. That's not foreknowledge. That's not, it's, it, it basically puts God on the sideline of a sandlot baseball game saying, pick me, pick me, when, they're, when the captains are choosing teams. Foreknowledge is not just knowledge. It is a covenantal relationship. And we see this, uh, we'll see this when we get to verses 19 and 20 in, um, when, when we get back to this text in August. But if you just jump over with me to verse 19 and 20, uh, Peter says, But with the precious blood of Christ, Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he, which is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So we see God's foreknowledge before the foundation of the world in this relationship, in this covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
so we can take assurance when we see the word foreknowledge that that's not just God knowing what's going to happen. That it is God specifically taking actions to accomplish his will and his purpose. It is an effective choice and purpose of God that he is choosing to enter a relationship with a person or a people group. We also see in the introduction here uh, that we see the uh, we see the Trinity right away at the very beginning that Christianity, uh, we as a people now and early Christians, we are we are Trinitarian, that we believe that God, that there is God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit, that there are three persons in one God. So we see the foreknowledge of God. And then we also see the, in the sanctification of the Spirit, so we have the Holy Spirit, for the obedience of Jesus Christ. This is actually a, a brief introduction and a quick outline for the rest of the letter. So Peter is letting his audience know at the very beginning what he's going to be writing about. The obedience, uh, that has the implications of salvation, which we'll see today. Uh, I'm sorry, next week. Uh, that's chapter 1, verses 13 through chapter 3, uh, we see sanctification uh, through the Holy Spirit, which is, uh, we'll see that in chapter 3 through chapter 5. And then God's foreknowledge is what we'll be looking at today. So we have the obedience, sanctification, and foreknowledge, those three uh, components that he's giving in his introduction that we're going to look at today uh, throughout as we study the book, but we'll see that they are listed here today. And then he closes his introduction with a very typical uh, first century uh, proclamation. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. And this is not to be confused with any type of prosperity gospel. This isn't God's goodies to you and an easy life. When Peter says God's grace and peace, he's talking about grace from God, which is salvation, so that we can have peace with God. So those are the components of salvation, and he's establishing that right from the very beginning. So again, this living hope that he talks about, if, you're, if your Bible has uh, paragraph headings, you'll probably see that the paragraph heading before chapter 3 says that we are born again to a living hope. So we have been given a living hope. So chapter, uh, first, first bullet point, what is the cause and effect or... How did we get it and what is it? How did we get this living hope and what is this living hope? Well, we see here in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So the cause we see at the very beginning of that verse is our Father's great mercy. That our Heavenly Father, out of his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. And that causing is the effect. I know it starts with cause, but it's actually the effect. So our, our Father's great mercy is the cause. And what we receive out of his great mercy is that we are born again to a living hope. That he has caused us to be born again. So if we're being born again, there has to be some type of deadness within us. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning as we've been going through the gospel according to John uh, but in Ephesians 2, we see, uh, it's, which is one of my favorite passages, we see Paul writing to the church at Ephesus talking about their spiritual state, that they are dead in their sins, that they're dead in their trespasses, 
but God raises them to life. That it is God who makes us to be born again. And we see it here in uh, 1 Peter as well. That it is God who is causing us to be born again to this living hope. This language of born again is something that we, uh, we see throughout the Gospels. Uh, probably one of the earliest places is when Jesus is meeting with, uh, with Nicodemus at night. And, he's, and he explains to Nicodemus that he needs to be born again. And Nicodemus is confused by that. Like, I don't understand. Do I need to go back into my mother's womb again to be born again? And, and Jesus is talking about spiritual birth, that he needs to be born again by the Spirit. We, we use that word today. We, Christians will sometimes explain or uh, they'll describe themselves as being born-again Christians, uh, which is a bit of a redundancy because being born again means that you're a Christian. So in a sense, you're just saying you're a Christian Christian. Um, but we still use that terminology today. To be born again is to be saved, is to be a believer in Christ, and, that, and it is caused by our Father's great mercy. Uh, and it is being born again into this living hope that we're talking about. Now, unfortunately, we've, we've diluted the term hope nowadays. So now you'll hear... Um, you know, I hope I get that raise, or I hope she says yes, or I hope he says yes, or I hope my vacation time gets approved uh, for the end of the summer. So we've taken hope and kind of turned it into wishful thinking. Uh, but when we come to Scripture and we see how hope is used in Scripture, hope is always used uh, when it's ground. It's always used by being grounded in facts and promises. That this is not a wishful, ethereal, living hope that we are hoping for someday. That this is an actual reality. That we can have confidence in this living hope because it's based on God's promises. That he has promised throughout all scripture and that we've seen manifested by Jesus Christ and being explained now by Peter in his letter. So what is this living hope? This living hope is salvation. The living hope that we have is salvation and resurrection. So what is another cause? We see in verse 4, a cause, uh, we see a cause of resurrection of Christ. What does it affect or what does it give us or what is it? That resurrection is to an inheritance. A lot of times when we, when we think about Christ's work on the cross, and I even prayed it in my prayer that I thanked God uh, for Christ's death on the cross, the salvation that we receive through that. A lot of times, you know, we may have expected to see uh, that the death on the cross is what our living hope is based in. That our salvation is, and that living hope is based in Christ's work on the cross. But here Peter says that it is based on Jesus' resurrection. That our living hope for salvation is not just hope for now, because we're saved, but it's hope for the future when we will be resurrected one day, where Christ was the first fruits, where he was the first one to be resurrected, and we will follow in his resurrection after that. This is not an inheritance, and, and I alluded to this in, in his introduction. You know, when we see that word inheritance, a lot of times we think of, in earthly terms, what an inheritance is, that I'm going to receive an inheritance when my grandfather passes away, or I'm going to receive an inheritance from a great rich uncle, and a lot of times we associate inheritance with treasure or a house or money or uh, the car 
that he doesn't drive anymore. Uh, a lot of times we think of inheritance in those terms. But when we see inheritance in this text, Peter is, again, talking about salvation. That the inheritance that we receive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is salvation. That it is the greatest inheritance we could ever have. Far greater than any money that we could receive here on earth is the fact that we had a serious problem. That problem being sin. That we are apart from God. That we have no way of getting to God in, and having a perfect relationship with Him. So we are completely dead in our sins, apart from God. That is our biggest problem. My biggest problem isn't how much money I don't have or you know, all of the things that we think about here on earth as being problems. My biggest problem is that I'm apart from God without Christ. So when he talks about inheritance, he's talking about God making a way to take care of my biggest problem. My biggest problem being sin and separation. So this inheritance that we receive by the resurrection of Christ is an inheritance of salvation. The greatest gift that we could ever receive. Another cause and effect we see is through faith and that effect is for salvation. So in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. It talks about God's power, which is being guarded, which connects back to the verse right before it, that it is kept in heaven for you. So what is kept in heaven for you? That living hope, our salvation. So we were again, we were talking about that this this morning in, in John's gospel, where it talks about that that there are sheep that God has given to the Son and, that, and Jesus dies for the sheep and none of those sheep will be lost. Where is our uh, assurance? Uh, where is another place of our assurance of that? It's right here in First Peter. That this inheritance that we've been given is salvation and that salvation is kept in heaven. That my salvation, the fact that I'm saved, the fact that I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior is protected in heaven by God. That's incredible. The fact that God is in heaven guarding my salvation, which is what these verses are telling us, that that inheritance of salvation is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that my salvation cannot perish, cannot be defiled, and cannot fade away, and that it is kept in heaven for me, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So we see the end there through faith for salvation. The cause of salvation is faith. The effect of that faith is salvation. That our salvation is guarded by God in heaven. Pastor John Piper has posed this question, and I've used it before, uh, but it is, it is still a good one and a sobering one to think about. That he, he asked his congregation in a sermon one time, how do you know tomorrow that you will be a Christian? So when you wake up tomorrow morning, how do you know tomorrow you'll be a Christian? The answer is because God will make me a Christian. Because he is guarding my salvation in heaven. That my salvation, as we saw in verse 3, was caused by God. That he caused me to be saved and raised me to life. And that he is guarding that salvation for me in heaven. That God's sovereignty 
is throughout all of salvation, all creation, and specifically all salvation as we're talking about it this morning. That my salvation is from God, it is a gift from God, and he is holding on to it and preserving it for me. So that is the cause and effect, that's what it is uh, and how we've been given it. The living hope is salvation, and we've been given it by God, our Heavenly Father, through his great mercy. So what is it for? What do we do with this living hope? What do we do with this salvation? Here in verses 6 through 9, Peter reminds us of our condition, that we are living in a fallen world that is corrupt and we will suffer. The, the difficult truth of this life is that this life is full of suffering. For those that, that come to Christ and are, are told or think that when they become a Christian they'll have an easy life after that, it's false. It's not. It's not easy uh, once we're saved. We continue to suffer as exiles, which Peter was addressing earlier, as exiles in this world. So Peter reminds us of the reality of living in a fallen world that we will suffer. He's going to expound on this more in chapter 3, and we'll get to that down the road at some point. Uh, but here he does talk about, he kind of introduces this, uh, this, this talking of suffering. But what he, uh, and I've been saying suffering, but what he actually does in these verses, as we jump down to verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So we see two very specific things. He uses the Greek word, which is translated as a little while. This word in the Greek emphasizes the shortness of it. So a little while is a very accurate interpretation of what Peter is trying to convey. That this suffering, these trials are brief. And then he also uses the word trials in this text. He says that these trials will last for a little time. There are other words that he could have used that in the Greek are specifically uh, translated as persecution or tribulation. Peter chooses not to use these words and actually uses the word that means trials. Trials being less severe than persecution or tribulation. So he's trying to encourage the readers of this letter from the first century. And he's encouraging us. Today, that these trials that we face, they will last for a little while, and they're just trials. That at the end of the day, that living hope that we have, that salvation that we have in Christ, what is it for? It is to give us a ballast so that we can weather the storms of life, these trials and sufferings that we endure on a daily basis sometimes, sometimes very intense and sometimes just minor conveniences. But we do experience these trials through life. So what is it for? This living hope gives us a ballast in our life. Now that term ballast is a, uh, can, be term, it can be an electrical term, uh, but in this case we're using it as the nautical term. So back in ancient times, and even now, nowadays, ships have ballasts in them. In ancient times, that ballast would have either been rocks or sand, something heavy that's put in the bottom of the boat, Nowadays, they just use water, so they'll pump water into tanks in the bottom of the boat to give it a ballast so that when it's going through waves and trials and difficulties, that that's the, the, whatever storm is happening around this ship, that this ship has a ballast, that it can weather those waves in the midst of that storm 
and not be broken apart and not be torn apart. This living hope gives us a ballast for our life. That in the midst of trials, in those trials that we experience, those sufferings, that this ballast assures us of our salvation. You know, if you think about the parable of the sower, that the parable of the sower, the sower was walking around and he was just throwing seed everywhere. And some of that seed fell in good soil and it grew and it produced 10 and 50 hundredfold. Some of that seed got thrown on the rocky soil where it shot up just for a little bit, but then there was no depth there and the plant died. Some of it went on packed soil and got eaten by birds. And some got thrown in the weeds and the weeds came, the cares of this world came and choked it out. As we're going through trials, whether it's rocky soil or thorns, whatever we're going through, we can be assured that our living hope is revealing to us the genuineness of our faith. That there are people who profess a faith, but don't actually possess that faith. Who think they're Christians or say they're Christians, but there's no depth there. Just like the seed that was thrown in thorny soil that looked like it was going to grow, but got choked out by the cares of the world. So as we're going through trials and as we're struggling through difficulty, as Peter's writing this letter to the exiles of the dispersion who are in the midst of trials from unbelievers, uh, accusations, um, difficulties, he's assuring them that this living hope that we have that brings us back to Christ, that brings us back to God's word in the midst of trials, when, when we're suffering and instead of choosing to run away from God, that we run to God, that is evidence of the living hope that's within us. It's evidence of salvation within us. He uses the illustration in this text of gold. Gold, the, the most, one of the most precious things we have on this earth. And Peter says that our faith will be tested like gold, that it will be heated up to get rid of all of the impurities, that those trials we go through are purifying us, that they're sanctifying us to make us look more like Jesus. And it's not easy and it's difficult and it's challenging and sometimes we don't like it, sometimes we don't want it, and yet God is doing for us what is best for us. That all of those trials and all of the suffering, that he's using that to form us into the image of his son. That is the process of sanctification, and we'll talk about that later uh, in, in Peter's epistle when we get to it. But sanctification is that process of God making us look more like Jesus. And if you think about it, that's an incredible thing, and it should be a very difficult process. Because what God is doing in our life and what will be accomplished at glorification, which he talks about here, is that one day we'll be perfect. I don't know about you, but I am far from perfect right now. But that is what God is doing in us through the power of the Holy Spirit because we have that living hope in us that he is forming us into the image of his son. And then we see, the, uh, we see that he talks about that. Though... Um, the gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ is talking about when, will we, when we will be glorified 
at Jesus' second coming. The revelation of Jesus Christ is when he comes again as the king. Not the first time when he came as a baby in a manger, but the second time when he comes as conquering king to rule this world. That is when all of the trials and all of the sanctification and all of that process will be completed and made full. This also gives us faith. The salvation that we have, this living hope, it gives us faith. What is it for? It is giving us faith. And we see this in these last, uh, this last verse in this section, that though we don't see him, we love him, and though we don't see him now, we believe in him. And the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That the ultimate outcome of our faith, the ultimate outcome of our li- this living hope, is that we will be saved. That one day we will be living in perfect relationship with, with Jesus and with God the Father in heaven without any sin encumbering us. That is our living hope. Which brings us to our last point this morning. How great is it? I mean, hopefully, as we've been going through this text, you're kind of getting glimpses of how great it is. I mean, it it literally is the greatest thing in the whole world. But how great is it? Verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted. So we see here the prophets that prophesied. This is talking about Old Testament prophets. That the Old Testament prophets, as they were writing down Scripture, which we have contained in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to this coming Messiah. That Israel was awaiting its coming Messiah. What we see in the the Gospels is that they were confused about what the Messiah was going to do. They thought he was going to come and be a political leader and free them from Rome. In all actuality, his mission was much greater than that. It wasn't just freedom from Rome. It was freedom from sin. That the Messiah was coming to save people from all nations, not just one nation. So the prophets were searching Scripture and they were inquiring about this They knew the Messiah would come, but they didn't know who and they didn't know when. That there was a coming Messiah coming someday, but they didn't know who it was. And they didn't know when that person was going to come. And then it was later revealed to them, as we see in the text, that this was to serve future generations. That the Messiah was not going to come during their time, which is what we look at as the Old Testament now, but he was coming at a future time that the prophets were writing this for future generations when Christ would come and reveal himself. So we see in the Old Testament how great is it? The prophets were constantly searching after this, trying to figure out who the Messiah would be, when he was going to come. They were laboring over Scripture. They spent hours and days and weeks of their life trying to figure out this. That's how great it is. But maybe even greater than that is is this last verse. It was revealed to them 
that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news, the good news being the gospel of Jesus Christ. They preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That the angels in heaven are longing to look into the gospel. That they're amazed by the gospel. Because the angels knew Jesus before the manger. The angels were created by God. And they knew Jesus from eternity past. That a person of the Godhead would humble himself to become a man. And not just to be a man, but to be obedient all the way to dying on a cross. The angels are amazed by that. That the creator God of this world would die for his creation. That's what happened. That's what we believe in. And that's what the angels find to be incredible. Because they saw Jesus before the manger. And they saw him come down to earth. And they saw him live a perfect life. And they saw him die innocently on the cross. And they saw him get buried. And they saw him raise again. How great is this? How great is this living hope? It is the greatest thing the world has ever heard. That God, all the way back in Genesis, at the beginning of the fall, when he was cursing Satan, he said to Satan, that you will bruise her offspring's heel, but her offspring will bruise your head. That all the way back in the beginning, right after the fall, God had already, prior to that, had a plan, but he reveals his plan in Genesis that one day there will be a coming Messiah who will defeat Satan and defeat death and defeat sin. That promise was made all the way back there, that there was a promise made And then when Christ dies on the cross, that promise is fulfilled through his perfect death. There is a resurrection, and that resurrection leads us and gives us a living hope. It is that living hope that we have that sustains us in the midst of trials. It's that living hope that affirms us when we wonder if we're saved when we're struggling with the same sin over and over and over again, but always confessing and always admitting back to God and running back to God in the midst of trials and sin. And it is that living hope that we have that we know that one day we will be raised again to live with God for all eternity without sin in a perfect new heavens and a new earth. That is the message that we have as Christians. That is the message we proclaim. That is really all there is. You know, I hope our church is known as a church that preaches the gospel because we do. But some people say, well, is that all you talk about? You only talk about the gospel? That's all there is. The gospel is all we have. If we move on from the gospel, we move on away from the gospel. 
And then we move into self-righteousness, and our salvation then becomes what we do and what we can do and not what God has already done through Jesus' death on the cross. This morning we're going to be celebrating communion uh, as the reminder to us of what Christ has already done. Uh, But for now, I want to close this in prayer. Jason will come and we'll sing one more song and then we'll go into our time of communion. Father, we thank you for today and we thank you that we can gather as your people to study your word. Thank you that you've given us your word and we thank you for this living hope that we have. Those two powerful words that we can rest in and rest on that you have caused us to be alive, that you have given us new life, that you have given us this living hope, and it is the greatest gift that we could have ever asked for. In fact, it's the greatest gift we never asked for because deep down inside we know that we are enemies of you, that we are sinners desperately in need of a Savior. And we give you and your Son and your Holy Spirit all the praise and all the glory for making us alive in you and preserving that salvation and guarding it in heaven. And our assurance is is completely in your work and your son's finished work on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you could stand with me. Oh, 